Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Gigabit Nation. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and we're here to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get broadband everywhere it needs to be. Um, one of the things that has become uh, an ongoing uh, issue, as it were, is the question of uh, the people who are not adopting broadband, and not necessarily because of a lack of infrastructure, which is indeed a, a, a consideration, but also the fact uh, there are people who are uh, not interested in getting on the, the Internet. Uh, and then there's also, uh, I've come to find out, that there's also sort of a phenomenon of people who have had broadband and then for one reason or another, they have uh, decided to to get out of broadband. And so there are some implications of this that we want to talk about and talk about not only how to uh, remedy some of these, but also look at, um, you know, what long term was it mean on the, uh, you know, with the adoption, uh, getting people engaged to, to the technology and then being able to uh, affect certain outcomes in healthcare, education, economic development, and and so forth. And so I have to today uh, Colin Reinsmith, who doctor, a PhD doctor, who is the assistant professor at the School of Library and Information Studies at the University of Oklahoma, and Brian Whitaker, who is the associate professor at Agricultural Economics, Oklahoma State University. Gentlemen, welcome to the the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us, Craig. We appreciate the opportunity to be on on the air. Ah, no worries, no worries. I was very pleased that uh, that my show reaches out even to the into academia, and so that's a, that's a, that's a good plus. That's a good plus there. Um, but anyway. Uh, let's start with um, what you guys do respectively and then what has brought you to together in this realm of uh, um, identifying, quantifying, uh, and, and otherwise studying the, the, uh, the impact of broadband adoption. And I will start with uh, with with Colin. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. Thanks again, Craig. It's great to great to be here, and it's uh, great to uh, be here also with Brian. Uh, so, um, my research looks at digital inclusion and broadband adoption. Uh, as you mentioned, I am a faculty member here at the University of Oklahoma in the School of Library and Information Studies. I'm also a faculty research fellow with the Benton Foundation. Uh, And so I've been working with the Benton Foundation since um, late last year uh, to um, look at some of these issues, which we'll we'll talk about today. And and, uh, this is my second year on the faculty at OU. And one of the one of the first things that I did when I got here, not only uh, did I, you know, try to understand much more deeply the, the broadband landscape um, in Oklahoma, but also uh, who is here doing good work in this area. And really that's what brought me to Brian's work. Um, Brian really is a, Brian Whitaker is a, a real expert in this field and uh, was really just very excited when I learned that Brian was just right up the road, not too far at Oklahoma State University. So, so I really I reached out to him uh, pretty quickly after after getting here, and uh, you know we connected and we really hit it off, and and then you know started talking about what kinds of projects could we we do together to really understand issues around broadband adoption and also the institutions. Uh, such as public libraries and other community anchor institutions that are really playing a significant role, as we know, in helping to promote broadband adoption. So, um, and that's led to a series of papers, which we'll, we can hopefully talk about more today. And uh, so, it's been really great working with Brian. Excellent. So, Brian, what's your your uh, in, uh, you know introduction into this t- topic area? 
Yeah, so again, Colin is there in, at OU in the, in the library, the uh, Department of Library and Information Science, and I'm here at Oklahoma State, and I'm actually an economist. So I work in the uh, Department of Agricultural Economics here at OSU, and in particular, uh, my field of, of study is, is rural economic development. So we have quite a, quite a bit of you know, rural places here in Oklahoma, and my mission here at OSU is to try to help them improve their quality of life, and that can be mm -hmm. a lot of different ways we have, you know, uh, we do work with uh, rural health care, you know, with uh, um, leadership development in rural areas, but also, obviously, a big part of that is broadband access. What does broadband mean for rural communities? And so a lot of my studies are kind of along that time, that focus of basically saying, you know, what does the evidence say that broadband has actually contributed to rural economies? And so I also, you know, teach classes here on rural development and, and I'm actually out in a lot of the, the parts of the state doing workshops on things like how to get small businesses to develop, to, to use small business websites and start taking payments online and stuff like that. So both Colin, Colin and I, you know, kind of pride ourselves in, in going out and actually meeting with the people. We don't just sit here in, in academia and, and, you know, write papers. We try to go out and, and conduct real-world research that has, you know, impacts for people. Okay. And um, so let's start with the, um, let's see, the, 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 the folks who are not connected. Because I think we've, you know, obviously in the show for, you know, for three years now we've been talking about, you know, getting people to uh, get on broadband and what happens to, you know, in communities when they have their um, broadband in infrastructure upgraded and so forth. But um, this area of, you know, the, the, the people who are not being served or that people aren't wanting to be served by broadband. Um, you know, again, we'll start with with uh, well, we'll start with Brian this time. You know, what's what's the general consensus on why it is that people haven't been, uh, uh, you know, getting involved with broadband? Okay, so. Again, you guys probably know most of these statistics, but we have a really nice data set that, that goes around about 50,000 households across the U.S., and it specifically asks, you know, do you have a broadband connection at home? And if you don't, why not? So Colin and I kind of dug into that and, and looked around. And you could, I mean, you guys probably know it's about 70% of households right now that do have broadband access. And so that remaining kind of, you know, uh, 30%, uh, we asked the question, why don't you guys have access? Why, you know, is it a question of cost? Is it a question of it's not available? And to me, the striking thing was here in, in both, well, in 2013 is the latest data we have, very few people claim it's simply not available. That's only about 1% of the responses that we get. Uh, the majority of them claim that it's, it's either no need or too expensive. Those are the two uh, top reasons. And the kind of uh, the new article that Colin and I have out here is that we, 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 break, we further break those people who don't have access into two categories, the people who have never ever adopted and the people who have adopted at one time, but then what we call unadopt, and so they stop their service for, for one reason or another. And you can actually see some pretty dramatic differences between the two groups. So, for example, the, the people that unadopted their number one reason by far is that it's too expensive. It's, they stop their service primarily because of cost. Um, whereas for the people who never adopted, their number one reason still is there's no need. They don't see a need in their own uh, personal lives. So that's kind of the first primary finding that we had here. Okay. And and Brian, you... you, you uh Brian, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Colin, you, you, you concur with that, I assume, and... Uh, you know what's been your, uh, you know, take on this whole thing? Yeah, a lot of the starting point for a lot of my research on broadband adoption, particularly the barriers to broadband adoption, has been uh, John Horrigan's work at Pew, and then for the Federal Communications Commission, uh, working on the National Broadband Plan. Uh, you know, his work was really just foundational in terms of identifying 
at around 20, 2010, the top three barriers to broadband adoption, which were stated as cost, as Brian has already said, uh, digital literacy or a lack of digital literacy or comfort with uh, computers and the Internet, and then this issue of relevance that, you know, as Brian also said, this no-need category that you might sort of, that people have checked off on surveys saying that simply the, the Internet is not relevant to, to my life. Um, and so what I've, what I've really been sort of interested in uh, is this sort of idea that the Internet is not relevant, that, that someone today and well, actually, that was 2010, but, but we see that this trend has continued over the years, that say in, even in 2013, uh, that there are still people that say the Internet is not relevant to me. And, you know, I've really, I've had, I've sort of taken issue with that because, um, specifically because the research that has been done, and, and this is more qualitative research, um, the quantitative studies, the more survey-based studies, a lot of what the great work that Brian's done and John Horrigan are just, uh, you know, necessary, critical. We need this research to really understand these broadly, these barriers to broadband adoption, but really what I've been looking at is sort of another set of studies, and and I've been conducting sort of research in a different area. This is more qualitative ethnographic research that really looks, as Brian had said before, uh, really goes out into communities, talks with people, observes programs, really more deeply tries to uncover, you know, what we mean by um, cost, uh, digital literacy, or a lack of digital literacy and relevance. And one of the things that um, not only uh, myself but other researchers have found is that particularly in low-income communities, um, it's very hard to find people who indicate that um, the Internet is simply not relevant to their lives. It's very hard to find people that will give you that response. And so um, what we've, um, what I've really been doing with the Benton Foundation and, and some of the work that I've been doing is trying to say, um, is it really that people find uh, the Internet not relevant? Or is it actually, if you dig a little bit deeper, is it something else? And actually, um, in, uh, in some, some of the studies that, that I've been, um, the, the study that I've been doing, but also other research in Canada, researchers who recently we featured on the Benton Foundation's website, um, this is a study of low-income residents in a public housing um, in Canada, uh, when they did more, uh, when they followed up with people who indicated originally that they said that the Internet wasn't relevant to them, they actually uncovered that it really wasn't an issue of cost, that it really, that when people answer that the Internet is not relevant to them, uh, in many cases, um, it's actually more an issue of cost if you take the time to really talk through it with them. And so what we've been really trying to do is to um, not only kind of, you know, raise awareness about this, the research that we've done, but also try to take these findings to policymakers, to the FCC, to, um, to the White House, to Congress, to say, through the Benton Foundation, to say, you know, if we're going to design interventions to address barriers to broadband adoption, then, I, you know, we really need to focus more on this. That we, we need to ask different questions, perhaps, when people say that the Internet is not relevant to them. So that's a lot of what I've been focused on. Um, and, but also then, and I think that what you've seen as well in the recent Pew study that came out at the end of uh, last year, that really cost, again, is the number one factor. And digital literacy still may be, or is, actually very important as um, uh, something we should be focusing on to, per to overcome barriers to broadband adoption. So let's focus on cost, number one. But let's also focus on digital literacy as well. And I, and I can talk about maybe in a little bit a few other things that I found in my study for the Benton Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, make sure I, we, we come back to that. Um, and But I want to start a different line of here with, um, uh, we'll start maybe with, with um, Brian, uh, you know, as the economist. Um, what is the, what is the impact that you are finding broadband is having in some real, you know, that identifiable way. Um, and then what's the, I guess, ability that you would uh, increase the amount of uh, economic benefit w that would happen 
if you've got these non-adopters and unadopters back into the fold? Uh, great question. And so, again, first of all, since I'm a rural development economist, most of my research in this area is specific to rural parts of the, of the country. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, last year, well, I guess it was actually 2014, I had a couple papers come out with some other some other really good people that work in this area, Sharon Strover out at University of Texas and Roberto Gallardo at, at, at uh, Mississippi State. And we did a, a couple papers that basically looked at, okay, what is contributing or what's the main factor for uh, relationship between broadband and economic growth in these rural areas. And so what we found is that the, the main thing I want to get across that these studies say is it's not just pushing out infrastructure that leads to economic growth. You can't just, you know, build a great gigabyte network and expect all kinds of uh, great things to happen to you. What we found is the thing was is the thing that relates correlates most closely with economic growth is adoption. You've got to get broadband adopted by people that live in those places. You can't just have the infrastructure there. You need to take the extra step and make sure people are adopting. So what I would say is in those two papers that we had on this, what we found was when you do see increases in broadband adoption in these rural areas, you see things like uh, more no, uh, greater growth in the number of firms, uh, greater growth in the total number of employees. You see things like uh, greater growth in median household income. Uh, and these are all in these kind of what we call high adopting uh, rural counties. And so we do see all these positive th- changes. But you don't see that if you just look at availability. So it's a step beyond availability. It's actually getting people to engage and, and actually to adopt broadband. So to get back to your question, you know, if we can get these non-adopters and unadopters to embrace broadband and, and become, you know, part of the, the, the positive uh, force for change, I mean, then we're, we're, we're moving them into the broadband adoption category, and that's what we see is associated with these positive economic outcomes uh, really across the board. Mm-hmm. And so, again, some of Colin's work and my work is, is try to understand what's preventing people from, from uh, adopting, and, and, again, we're trying to get that, we're trying to make that case to the policymakers that, hey, you know, really, number one should probably be cost. And so we've got some programs out there now. Um, they're, they're changing the Lifeline program that will, you know, subsidize broadband access here in the in the future. And there's some other programs that are adoption oriented. But that's a big policy shift from the past when basically, you know, the federal government said, well, our broadband policy is to just give grants and loans and get the infrastructure out there. Um, and that, you know, certainly that is required. But now we're ready to take that next step, I think, and, and really try to emphasize the adoption piece of the puzzle. And that's what, again, from an economic standpoint, that's what we found has led to the changes in economic uh, growth. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Colin, do you have a, a take on the urban side of this? I mean, I understand that uh, Brian has a has a way some more uh, rural focus by virtue of his, his experience, but have you looked at uh, the broadband uh, economic impact in the ur- in the uh, urban areas, you know that's a great question, and it's true that. Um, well, first of all, I should just say one of the great things about the partnership that Brian and I have is Brian is an economist, and I'm not. <laughs> so okay. I'll be clear about that. Um, but but I think it really creates a really rich not only uh, working relationship, but also in the ways that we both look at information and data. So and study it um, and collect it. So um, so really, a lot of my research um, be, has been more looking sort of on the ground um, and looking at no, not only the organizations that provide access to broadband and help promote broadband adoption, but also some of the impacts that people report, individuals, families uh, talk about in terms of the impacts that the broadband adoption programs have had on their lives. So I haven't, just in response to your question, I haven't necessarily studied the sort of broader, uh, the larger uh, economic picture in terms of the economic impacts of broadband in urban areas. Um, More what I've looked at is sort of through multiple perspectives on the ground. And what I mean by that are the community-based organizations or digital inclusion organizations that do this work every day. They're sort of in the trenches. And the impacts that they see, because they work with 
individuals and families over time, but also the stories from individuals who are in those communities, but also thirdly and importantly, partners. The partners who, so that would mean a human service, social service agency, other organizations in a particular area that also touch those individuals and families in a way that make an impact in their lives. And so that through that process of what's called triangulation, uh, I'm able to sort of get a really good idea of what's working and what's not working. But a lot of that is more self-reported data. It's harder for me to, or I haven't yet actually uh, looked at sort of um, sort of the eco- broader economic in- impacts, which, which often take longer time. These are things that Brian can talk to you more about um, to speak to, but, you know, data that you need to really collect over a longer period of time. Uh, and, and and that's also, I think, it, it, some a direction that, uh, interestingly, I think a number of digital inclusion organizations, they do have data, uh, but they're interested in finding ways to collect and gather that data so they can show those types of impacts to policymakers, to funders, uh, to really see the true value that organizations um, that are doing this work every day are having in their communities. Huh, okay. Um, uh, let's talk about, um, you know, we, we, we've we got a uh, situation where people are, um, you know, stepping away from broadband after having been involved. And your your take is that um, it's a cost factor. Um, is it that that people, you know, if I'm looking at the, the nature of the, uh, the the folks are having cost difficulty, are they having they they they're in between jobs? So in essence, the employment picture is very uh, up and down. Uh, there's you know just chronically a problem, and it just you know eventually just takes a toll. On you know people's willingness to be in uh, the 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 um, you know to have broadband. I mean, what? How do you uh, look at that part? I, I think it's it's all the above. I mean, it depends on the uh, individual household situation. Certainly, you know, so there are certainly some households that are. You know, someone loses a job, and the first thing they can potentially cut out of their monthly bills is broadband access. Certainly, um, but then you know there are other aspects where people just you know maybe their employment situation is stable, but for one reason or another, you know they have an unexpected bill come up and they have to make a cut somewhere. And again, broadband is is what gets that uh, the, the short stick there. One thing I thought was interesting in our paper is that we actually looked explicitly about households with children and without children, and mm-hmm. we do see you know, higher rates of unadoption for the households with children, and they also are more likely to claim that cost is the, is the number one reason why. So again, you have you know, uh, raising a household with, with, a, with several children, there's a lot of expenses there, and even though broadband's clearly important for uh, households with children, uh, there's they're very likely to cite cost as the reason why they can't uh, adopt. So, again, it's an individual household decision. Um, what we do know is that if you look at overall rates of this unadoption, the overall rate is somewhere around 4%. Uh, um, but when you start looking at the lower income households, so those with you know incomes of around $20,000, $30,000 a year, their rates are basically double that. So they have basically about 8% rates of unadoption. Whereas you start looking at the higher incomes, so $100,000 a year income, their rates are only about 1% to 2%. So it clearly is tied to to overall income level. Um, And again, it depends on the individual household situation in terms of uh, what the the underlying reasons for that are. Hmm. That's interesting. Wow. for the places where uh folks you know you you uh, uh there are folks that are not considered uh that are that are considered fairly well off um, how how do you how do you reconcile that part of it i i i 'cause I read some of your stuff 
And I, I mean, I, so I understood what, what you were saying, you know, the, uh, understanding what, what the words were saying, but it seemed a little bit, um, you know, a little bit, you know, uh, I just had a problem trying to kind of reconcile that. Uh, yeah, that's how, interesting. How... And so again, one of the things we have in our in our paper is a is a distinction between the low income people who unadopt and the high income people who unadopt. And to me, that would, I, mean, I agree with you. I mean, I, I would assume the higher income, you know, and again, the data do show they're much less likely to unadopt, but still. There are households out there that choose, even though they're higher incomes, to not adopt. And so, uh, you know, a couple things we could see there is that we do see kind of this uh, substitution. Maybe some of those people have access at work, and they're using that broadband connection at work to accomplish a lot of the things that they could have done at home. Um, and so that's one thing that we see. Uh, the only thing that really stands out in the data is that they're obviously much less likely, the higher income people are less likely to say that it's too expensive, so that's kind of intuitive, but they're also more likely to say no need. And so again, maybe that's because they're they're doing uh, what they need to do online, you know, at a, at a work connection or some other place. Um, and that's the only, you know, main, that's the only kind of hypothesis that I can come up with because uh, I tend to agree with you. We would expect the, the higher income people to, to have uh, See the value of broadband. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, when you when you uh, in one of your um, papers where you mentioned that um, you need to figure out how to provide some sort of uh, cost alleviate um, uh, some sort of. Uh, Incentive or whatever for uh, your, you know, the law, the war, the um, the world that you looked at a higher annual earning average. Was that because of the uh, number of folks who uh, were in that, you know, more of the the eighty to seven, you know, seventy thousand dollar range, or how did that come come to be? So if you look at I me, mean, what the main the, the subsidy we were talking about is the Lifeline pilot program, and they basically give you like I think it's like seven or eight bucks a month to pay for oh, right. either a phone a phone connection or they're changing it to hopefully to to fund a broadband connection. And so the the, the problem with that is they're limiting it to people who make a certain amount of money. So basically, it's right. 135 percent of the of the poverty line, which is around twenty twenty two thousand dollars a year. And what our analysis says is once you run the, the models here, it actually, the people between ten dollars and $40,000 a year are the ones that are most likely to cite cost. So it's not just limited to people making less than $20,000 a year. It's, it's, it's more geared towards people all the way up to $40,000 a year. So if you really want to engage these unadopters, you can't just expect the Lifeline program to, to do that as is. Because it it will it will only subsidize those households up to about twenty thousand dollars, whereas we say, hey, there's a need for this subsidy for you know kind of this middle income group, the the, the people between twenty and forty, and so that's again kind of the policy shift we're we're trying to to fight for, is that to to engage these unadopters, you know, the cost is an issue not just for the the, the very low income households, but for those on the on the upper side of that as well. Hmm. Okay. Um. Huh. Very good. So now some of the uh, efforts through the Lifeline program. Um, this is an area that I, I see a need for changing the way this program is um, managed. Because originally it was set up to be um, you're giving us some uh, some some amount of uh, dollars relief um, for a fairly simple item, which is the telephone. And now we're talking about broadband, and that's a whole different beast. How do you how do you you know? And I know I'm asking you kind of to go a little bit maybe beyond your uh, area of expertise, but 
but how does a program that was built on nine dollar ten dollar um subsidies be somehow reconstructured or restructured so that it deals with the world of broadband and either one of you can yeah and that's a you know a lot of people are, are asking that same question you know is it is that a, a reasonable amount of no, money for a monthly broadband connection and clearly it's not going to pay the entire cost of a of a monthly broadband connection but the hope is that you know for the amount of money they have available uh, that will spur some people to to adopt, and so it's, you know there's still a lot of debate going on about this. Another big debate that's going on right now is that the the way they're laying out the Lifeline program currently is they're only going to give you again that eight dollars for either a phone connection or a broadband connection, not eight dollars for one and then eight dollars for the other. So you basically have right. to make a choice: do you want a phone line or do you want a broadband connection? And so for a lot of these, you know, low-income households, it's going to be a tough choice. And uh, so some people are basically saying, well, we need to, to subsidize both. Some people are saying we don't want to make it $8. We want to make it, you know, something more reasonable that could actually cover a, a monthly cost, maybe $25. But, again, then you get into, you know, where does the fund, how, how, how does that affect the funding outlays and how many households can we, can we provide this to. And so there's still those debates going on. And I know still the the FCC is still listening to uh, to comments about that, but the way they laid out the initial program is it's it's just going to be that that eight dollars per month uh, subsidy. And again, it's debatable whether or not that will eventually affect enough people to to get them to move into that from non-adopters to adopters. But we'll we'll just have to see. <laughs> right. And, you know, our Collins. Go ahead. I was say it seems to come to the 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 crux of the the issue, which is. Um, if you've done all this research that says people have a cost problem, um, actually, hold, hold on one second. I think there's a caller here who wants to ch chime in. Okay. Hello, this is Broad Blot. Um, hello. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? How are you today? Hello. Yes, I'm calling you from rural Wyoming. Well, howdy. Welcome to the show. Um, and you're an ISP, right? Yes. Um, I, I formed the world's first wireless ISP here in Wyoming 25 years ago. Okay. Wow. Well, you have some thoughts on um, why people are or are not using broadband. And I'm really interested to see what some of your thoughts on the matter are. Um, well, let's start by talking about what we mean by broadband. Um, okay. I didn't, maybe you've defined this, and I tuned in late and didn't hear the whole conversation. Um, the FCC, as you know, has adopted a very high Cadillac standard for broadband. They say that if you don't have 25 megabits per second um, downstream, then you don't have broadband. Is that the standard you're referring to, or what? What are you? What level of access to the internet are we, call, are we calling broadband? Well, because that's that's where everybody's sort of starting. That that's everyone's kind of point of reference. So we'll call it that for now. Well, I should caveat that the data that we are working with was taken back in 2011, 2013. That was before the FCC came out with this new ah, threshold. Okay. And so, if you look at the CPS, the way they actually ask the question is anything significantly higher than a dial-up connection. So, uh, you're, I mean, it can basically be go back to the old 200k uh, definition that was that was in there. But we, we, you know, they they don't spe specify a certain um, threshold, but they basically say, you know, there's a lot of technologies you can use. Do you use DSL? Do you use a cable connection? They they classify all those as broadband, and they do classify wireless as broadband as well. Um, but it's again, that's debatable depending on the, the ISP. I understand that. Yes. Do they consider a cell phone uh, that uh, you know that has internet access, uh, say with uh, CDMA? Do they consider that to be, uh, or EVDO? Do they consider that to be to qualify as broadband? Because if so, a lot of people really do have it, 
and uh, it's only under the FCC's new standard, um, which they imposed because they uh, be because by doing so they were able to uh, make a claim that the statute gave them more authority. Um, that a lot of you know that there's uh, there's uh, a large gap where they say 10% of the 10% of the population of the United States doesn't actually have broadband according to their new standard. Right, and so yes, I mean the short answer is for these specific questions that in our data set that they asked, they we you know we do have data on the ones that are claiming yes we have a cell connect, cellular connection and we're counting that as our as our broadband connection. So we have that information. Yes, well, well in that case, in, in our um, by the way, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know if I asked your name when you first got here. Oh, I'm sorry. The name is Brett Glass. Got it. Okay. Um, so, what's your take on why people uh, are are or are not uh, adopting broadband? Well, our take is that uh, most people actually, if they want access to the internet, uh, they have some way of obtaining it, and it's really, you know, then th this is why the question comes up: What do you call broadband or access to the internet? Most people have cell phones. There are more cell phones than there are people in the United States, and that will give them some level of access. Um, if they have smartphones, most of them are able to tether them if they only need occasional access. So if they don't need access to the internet very often, they can not only uh, access it through the screen of their phone, but they could they can get a computer online using Wi-Fi, using the tethering. Um, people who are more active, people who want to do things like watch Netflix, yes, they're going to, they're going to go for for a separate connection other than their cell phone. And we provide a lot of those, um, not only to poor people in rural areas, but to rather well-to-do people in rural areas. Um, I'd say about uh, in, in, the, in the distant rural areas, 50% of our calls come from people who were financially not that well off, and the other 50% come from people who were in those rural areas to escape but have lots of money, and they build themselves very large, fancy houses. Uh, they want Netflix at those houses, and so they uh, they call us and they ask us for internet. So there's there's really there there's a sort of a bimodal distribution here. Um, there aren't as many people in the middle actually. They either tend to be financially not very well off or potential or, or financially very well off. Um, and but but uh, again, you know whether whether they come to us doesn't seem when they come to us it doesn't seem to be because they don't have any access, but because they want a particular kind. And right. I think, you know, our data would bear that out as well. When when we ask them, you know, why don't you have access or don't you have broadband at home? Only about one percent say it's because it's not available. And, and again, the majority of them are going to claim either it's too expensive or again it's that that no need that pops up. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's good to hear. And many of the people who say it's too expensive will tell you, if you ask them to elaborate, that it's too expensive to have something other than their cell phone. But they do have the cell phone. Well, there is that. Um, now, hmm, so, so now we have a different uh, per perspective. Um does the issue of having enough broadband, or what, what it seems like you're saying, is that there's there's the issue of having uh, access, then having enough access to do what you want to do. And sometimes when we're talking about, you know, is there a broadband need, sometimes it, is, it goes down to the question of um, are people getting the broadband to do what they want to do versus just having the connection. And and I and I think that somewhere we have to address or maybe it makes good sense to address what is it that people want to do because number a number of those people aren't being uh aren't wanting to be on just because of Netflix, but they want to deal with um you know a business setup. Or there are people that 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 have access or want to have access with uh, medical technology because they you know they have chronic illnesses of one sort or another, and so the level of need needs to be um, such that it can support you know some of the new telemedicine act uh, applications that are that are coming out, and so does this change? 
your perception, perception, um, perception uh, Colin and Brian, you know, of, of you know, you're, you know, you've seen, you know, your, your data and so forth, but if you break it down to a question of are people getting what they need versus, you know, just something that makes, that's a nice to have, you know, does that does that change your outlook of the of the world in this thing? So let me well, offer something can, real quick and I'll let Colin jump in. Oh sure. Yeah, sure thing. Because the first thing I would say is when we actually go in and look at the FCC broadband uh pilot project data, so they they did this lifeline as a pilot project, what we found was the unadopters when they reconnected, they were much more likely to want wired connections. So not just a mobile connection. And I think that gets to some digital literacy stuff that you kind of alluded to there, Craig, that there are some things you can only do on a wired connection. And so I'll let Colin, Colin, I'll let you kind of jump in and and maybe take it from that. But that was just something I noticed. And and maybe, Brett, you can can speak to that as well. Um, Well, yes, I'd like to to add one thing to this. um, Do do you mean wired or do you mean fixed? Because uh, sorry, yes, um, I mean, we yeah. do very high-speed wireless connections to people's right. homes that are that exceed the capacity of DSL, and in some cases can exceed the capacity of a cable modem. Right. But they're fixed connections; they're not mobile connections. Right. I guess I'm right. well. I'm go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Colin. Um, so basically, I mean, I could just talk to speak to um, what people told me all across the United States. So the study, I should just really just briefly set up. So the study that I did last year, it was a three-month study. I visited uh, seven cities across the United States. Unfortunately, it was only one rural community in rural Maine and Washington County. I wish I had uh, had the opportunity to speak with more rural uh, folks. Uh, but it was, uh, so one rural community in Washington County and Maine, and the rest were uh, were urban areas across the United States. And uh, what I did, as I mentioned earlier, is I, I spoke with, uh, visited with digital inclusion organizations, so organizations that you might think of as public libraries, but also other community-based organizations that really have as their goal to help people connect um, to the Internet and to gain the skills that need, they need to be successful in their lives. But really the, the, the focus of the organizations and how I, how I chose them were those organizations that were specifically focused on helping to provide low-cost options to low-income residents um, to be able to help them to to uh, gain access to the Internet at home. Uh, because a lot of the people that I talked with said that while these organizations that oftentimes provided public access to computing, again, you might think of a, library, a public library that, that do this, and they serve oftentimes... Uh, in communities across the country, the public library is the only institution or place in a community where people can go to gain access to computers and the Internet. And what people overwhelmingly said is that while they could uh, gain access to uh, to information via a mobile device, that they really did prefer they, not to be... Um, uh, to be at home with a hardwired, you know, a computer, a desktop, or a laptop, um, because they could do things much easier than they could on a mobile device. But really, what 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 I found is that, and a lot of the programs, um, uh, in order for people to come in to receive a low cost, in some cases there are organizations, for example, in uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota, uh, PCs for People were doing a, a great program where they were providing. They were essentially providing a, a reselling low-cost broadband um, through a mobile device that people could take home and use for about $10 a month uh, that would give them access. They could connect to about five devices, and at the time it was unlimited, no data caps. And the program was incredibly successful because obviously people could come home, could go home to their house. They could, they could plug their laptop, their computer, uh, into this device, and they can do everything that everybody else who can afford to pay for for these devices can do at home. And so that really gets your question around use. Uh, really, what people told me were their number one priorities were uh, employment, because oftentimes people were unemployed. That's why they couldn't afford to have access to the devices, but also access to educational opportunities, educational opportunities in order to get better jobs. So these, the, a lot of the uses that I heard over and over again. For people who could not afford to have access, 
were really just to get ahead in their lives, uh, to help their, also to help, uh, to help their, their kids do well in school. So I think they're really just fundamental uses that people uh, told me that both individuals and families all across the country were saying the same thing, that the Internet is too expensive. If, if I can gain access to a low-cost option, I can get ahead in life. It can provide that window that can allow me to apply for jobs in the amount of time that I often don't have enough time when I'm at a public library because even an hour in some cases, having up to an hour to apply for a job is not enough time. And that's not the public library's fault. It's just the reality of make, providing access to as many people as possible. So, so these are real challenges that people all across the country are facing and really having a low-cost subsidy for broadband access people were saying to me would be incredibly helpful for them in their lives. Uh, let me st- uh, let me throw an out uh, throw an item in here um that I think all three of you could probably comment on which is um to to uh Brett has made the point that if that is it's uh, there is an issue of the speed and it doesn't really matter where it comes from so if the uh, provider can provide it through fixed wireless, if they can provide uh, fiber wire connections, it doesn't really matter to the end user. Really what matters is that there is enough speed for the cost that they can afford. And so so let's, let's say, one, that that we need to probably start talking about the speed as the ultimate goal here, and can we get this from wherever as long as it's reliable and it's affordable? I mean, I would take that as a first, you know, uh, thought there. And then the second thing is, in the libraries, or in a couple of libraries, they are experimenting, which I think is what Colin O'Brien just mentioned, what is a... Um, a portable uh, Wi-Fi radio that people check out at the library and then take home, right? Because it's, it's based on the the uh, preposition or preposition, whatever that um, if I can get a, a low enough cost out of a unit that I plug into my wall and it it, op- it you know operates in whatever spectrum it does that that's a good way to address the affordability and reliability question and we'll start with Colin and then go to Brian and then end up with Brett on what do you, what what's your thoughts on the on that that whole thing yeah, so I can just say very briefly that it's definitely speeds matter, um, but also uh, data, the amount of data that gets transferred over a network within, say, the, the, the period of a month. So data caps matter. Um, uh, you know, we need right, to think, think seriously about data caps as well. And I understand there are cost issues. It's, it's, a, it's a complicated issue, but I think that speed is one thing, cost matters, but also how much data are we talking about? Because if, you know, somebody has a device, they go home, it's low cost, but they bump right into those data caps and can't do much more after a couple of days, then the device is useless or, you know, we're, right. we're, we're defeating the purpose of the program. So that's a real issue. It's a problem. I, I'm not sure the answer. I don't have an answer to that, but I know that people are really looking into this issue because it's a serious issue. So, But what I do know is that for the program, there was a program called Mobile Beacon, uh, and that was up and running for a number of months. I believe it still is. Uh, it was in transition, yeah, yeah. I believe, when uh, Sprint, um, in transition from Clear to Sprint. But the program that I mentioned earlier in the Twin Cities was extremely successful through Mobile Beacon, uh, PCs for people being sort of essentially a broadband reseller to low-income communities, no data caps, uh, connect up to five devices, $10 a month. People could come in and pay cash which was hugely helpful because we know a lot of low-income communities, uh, people right. don't have bank accounts in some cases. It was a hugely successful program, and I would say that from all of the data that PCs for People had, that if you think about sustainable broadband adoption, it was a wonderful model 
but you know, trying to scale that up, I, I understandably would be very challenging. But it was a very successful program. So those are, and I think also just one lastly with public libraries, I think it's a wonderful uh, direction that public libraries are going, thinking beyond their walls, uh, thinking about how they can help promote broadband adoption, and it's something that uh, something that I've been looking at, something that Brian and I have been talking about as well, and uh, are excited to look more at that area. I think it's a wonderful role that libraries could be playing moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would just agree with that, and, and uh, it's a great point, Craig, about the the uh, hotspot lending that these these libraries are doing. And, and Colin and I are, are pretty familiar with what both the New York public library system has done, and then there's also been some some rural states that have reached out and, and started these programs. And both Kansas and Maine have relatively rural libraries that are lending these hotspots out to their um, uh, constituents for people to come in and get from anywhere from a week at a time to a month at a time. And that's basically you know, free broadband access for that month. And so absolutely, we, you know, I think we're all in agreement that speed does matter. The one thing I would say about that is, again, if you go back to our unadopters paper, if you look at the people who unadopted, once they uh, re-engaged with the, with the uh, uh, Lifeline pilot project, they actually chose slightly slower speeds and a little bit lower data limits when they chose wireless connections. So, they're just very, very price conscious, I think, and even though they were subsidized, they tended to choose a little bit slower connections than people who had never, adop never adopted before, and that could be because, again, the never adopters just aren't familiar with what their needs would be, but it was interesting to me to see that the people who uh, ended their connections, once they did come back, they chose slightly uh, slower connections than those who had never adopted in the first place. That was an interesting finding for me. So, Brett, what, what's your take, then? Well, as an ISP, we get calls every day from people who ask about speed because they believe that speed matters. But what we find is in practice, it's not, that's not the primary thing. Speed matters to some extent. But uh, if, you, if you can't do something at all because the speed's simply too slow, like you can't, you can't stream a video at all without it pausing, then it's a concern. But as soon as you get above that baseline, it is volume that matters much more than speed. As a rural ISP, the reason people why people uh, why people come to us and don't just use their cell phones all the time is because they want a connection without a data cap. The reason why people switch to us from satellite because they uh, they've they've run into the fair access policy on the satellite and suddenly have discovered that they can't do anything anymore because they've exceeded a certain number of gigabytes um, is because they're worried more about the volume. Um, they're doing something that requires more volume, and at that point, they consider the, the fixed broadband connection rather than the mobile one. So that seems to be the real key. Um, they, they, they're only concerned about speed. We, we find, actually, that most of, our, uh, most of our customers also, when they've tried the different levels, opt for a lower, far lower level than the FCC claims they're going to want. The FCC is claiming that anything below 25 gigabits per second, or sorry, megabits per second, is not broadband. The majority of our customers are at about one to one and a half megabits per second and are perfectly happy with it so long as there's no cap on the volume. Right. Okay. I, mean, I think that's a really valid point. So I'm gonna we got about mm, six minutes or so. I wanna do a two uh like a minute of each for each one of you and I guess Brett is now part of our team. Um one of the one of the audience members mentioned that a lot of the broadband proj um, uh, stimulus money went to middle mile, and to and and they did you know that middle mile uh, part plus they wired up institutions, libraries, and what have you. Um, is there what, what do you think of um using or getting the libraries and other institutions to be uh free of the limitation that prevents them for preventing service beyond their four walls it's like let me you know so a library can have the most awesome uh technology but it has to only be used on its on its uh, ground what would happen if we move remove that um, rule 
would there be a problem? And I I like to see you know what Ryan and uh, Colin have to say in a minute, but also what what Brent thinks because I know that as an ISP that tends to get into your business maybe too much. So Brian, or start with you. Yeah, that would be the first concern I would have. As there's been this whole issue of you know when does the the uh, public start to interfere with the the private business, and so that's one situation where I think it's a valid concern. That said, there are certainly cases where you know uh, it it makes sense for the public entities that have broadband to be able to provide the if there's no other uh, options available within the community. So. Again, I'll, I'll kind of defer to you know Brett's opinion on this, but uh, there's there's a case to be made for for both instances where you 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 say yes, we're going to let these AIs provide access to the rest of the community, but from a free market standpoint, there's certainly a case to be made that hey, that's that's unfair competition. Okay, Colin, what's your take? Well, you know, really, and what I talk about in the Benton Foundation report that is available for download through through the Benton Foundation's website is really my focus is really on partnerships. What are the what are the successful partnerships that make sustainable broadband adoption possible in communities across the United States? And I think that um, you know, if there can be opportunities where public libraries or any you know any organization that is helping uh, folks to gain access to the internet um, and the digital literacy, literacy skills they need to be successful. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, if they can, if if those organizations can partner with ISPs uh, to help people be able to afford the cost of broadband, I think that's wonderful. I think that's great. Um, but oftentimes it's been very, it's been very difficult for organizations to to partner in any sort of, you know, formal way. And so I think that's why potentially you might see a lot of the smaller organizations saying. Well, a lot of a lot of the communities trust us because they come to us for other reasons, and uh, you know if we can play a role in helping them gain access to the internet, um, we're going to do it. And I think that's what a lot of libraries are saying. So, um, but I, I definitely see where you know it, it, potentially maybe there can be difficulty. Obviously, it has it has to do with the size of the market, I guess. But um, you know, I think what I'm really saying in the end is, uh, let's find ways to partner and, and work together, and uh, really just help people where they need it. Okay, uh, uh, Brent, uh, thirty minutes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One, one okay. Minute. Well. Okay. Well, um, a number of people have proposed things like this. Blair Levin is big on having universities rather than libraries do this sort of a thing. But there's a real danger in it, and you have to understand the business model of small, especially small and rural ISPs, to understand why it's, it may sound like a noble cause, but it may not be the best way to do it. Um, my ISP has a foothold in a town with about uh, 30,000 people, and then it reaches far out into areas which otherwise would be unserved. If the public library or a university or anything else were to take away our business in town, we would lose the economies of scale that we needed to reach out to the less populous areas. And it would basically undercut the business. The entire business model would not work. Um, so we need to be careful. Um, the, the, other th the, other, the other point that I want to make is that uh, we want to be careful about what we subsidize. Um, if the library provides this uh, this service and it, it extends beyond the uh, the borders of uh, the boundaries of its building and is providing it to homes in the neighborhood. Are people really going to be using this access for constructive purposes, or are they going to be using it to do things like well view um, pornography or other questionable content, or just play or watch or just watch movies? Um, we we need to you know, and is that something that we want to subsidize uh, to the same extent that we subsidize other things like uh, hunting for jobs? Uh, I, I think I, I think that uh, you know there there are a lot of ways that this can go wrong, and we need to think about it carefully before we consider doing it. Okay. And uh, we're just about out of time, so I want to thank um, Colin and Brian for your <clears throat> participation, and Brett, thank you for, for, for chiming in. I think it, it added a good perspective to this whole discussion. So I definitely want to thank all of you, um, and hopefully we'll get be back again uh, with some more data, some more uh, thoughts on how we can keep moving this broadband thing forward. Uh, and to my audience, thank you again for um, uh, 
for your time and uh, participation. Tomorrow we're going to take a look at the Tennessee law that prohibits broadband and how that can hopefully be moved and away we go. So anyway, have a great day, folks, and uh Thanks, Greg. Thank you.